0: The best product you can build is that tells its story and adds on and adds on and adds on over time as you unfold it more and more.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of Mind Gravity Podcast. I'm your host, Rohan Honda. All right, so today on the show we have Sanket Pothub co-founder and CEO of Synapse. Synapse is a San Francisco-based startup that operates a platform enabling banks and fintech companies to easily develop financial services. The company closed a 33 million Series B in 2019, bringing the total funds raised to 50 million. The company is aiming to democratize and become the AWS of financial services. The backers of the startup include famed investors from Andreessen Horowitz, innovation capital, and Trinity Ventures. Now, without further ado, let's dig straight into our conversation and hear it all from Sanket himself. Sanket, welcome to the Mind Gravity podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so we know you have a startup, Synasify, which is doing extremely well within the fintech space. But before we dive into what Synasify is, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background, your backstory, where you come from, and how you ended up founding Synasify. Yeah um
0: I essentially come from India so uh after I finished uh my high school um I stayed in India for about a year um to do my computer engineering course um and around that time I I got really fascinated with uh moving to the US um uh, we we had some friends and family in Memphis and um I told my parents I wanted to I wanted to go and pursue uh, my undergrad um in in the U.S. in itself. So um, pretty much packed my bags and moved to Memphis, uh, which is where our friends and family were. Um, Finished my undergrad there. As I I did that, um, I got really interested in physics. So uh, applied to do my research in uh, an astrophysics lab uh, in the physics department. Started taking on more courses in math and physics as well. Kind of the the physics lab that I was working in, we were we were doing um, we were doing image processing for coronal loops. Corona, like corona, is essentially the atmosphere of the sun, pretty much. And we were trying to solve this like coronal loop controversy, which essentially is essentially the 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 center of the sun is is the one that's doing all the nuclear fusion reactions. So that's where all the energy is getting created. So just like any any energy emitting source. Um, as you move further away from it, uh, usually the temperature uh, uh, declines because you're moving away from heat. right? So uh, that happens with stars uh, as soon as you hit the surface of the stars. And then uh, the temperature starts increasing again, uh, which is essentially the atmosphere of the sun, which is corona. And we were trying to figure out why that was happening. So that required like a lot of um, image processing, uh, some computer vision stuff. Um, so I was doing a whole bunch of that, got really interested in programming because that was my primary course. Um, so to tried to solve a lot of problems in the lab with coding uh, versus with traditional uh, physics alone. Yeah, so kind of that's that's how I really started dabbling into what became kind of the foundations of the company, which is um, uh, uh, how do you use coding to solve some of these like Computer vision type problems, which essentially was the beginning of Synapse. Like we were trying to build like a slick onboarding uh, for for banks, which was kind of the idea. Like uh, initially, when I tried to, um, I was like at this hackathon. And I was trying to apply for a bank account with Simple, which was the only neo banks uh, back there, and they wouldn't onboard me because um, I was an immigrant. So. The more I researched into the problem, it seemed like banks are allowed to onboard immigrants, but they're not allowed to, well, they're allowed to onboard immigrants, but banks don't have uh, uh, the infrastructure to be able to do so automatically. So they usually call you in a bank branch, look at your government ID, look at your proof of uh, proof of address, your visa documents. Um, so that seemed a whole lot like the computer vision problem. So the first version of Synapse was let's try to build an alternative uh, to banks, pretty much the idea being the Google for banks, so that anyone across the planet could sign up for a bank account online, and they wouldn't have to go into bank branches or anything, because those could be like distance prohibitive, Adversely impacts immigrants, Adversely impacts people uh, uh, who don't have means of transportation. Um, So we kind of saw it as... um, Just like how Google democratized knowledge and you don't have to travel to a library anymore, banking is where libraries are, which is like knowledge is consolidated in these few places and you have to go there to be able to access them. And the first idea was, let's kind of build this new bank, if you may, um, that, that does everything that banks need to do to stay compliant online, try to automate the back office as much as you can. Uh, which came from pretty much like what I was doing in the astrophysics lab, by and large. And that way you can build a much more scalable banking infrastructure. So kind of like that was the goal. Um, As I kind of like went went about executing on that, it became quite clear that there was a lot of uh, will with, with the developers to be able to build new innovative financial products. The infrastructure was completely broken. like <laughs> there was no API for issuing cards, there was no API for creating a user account. like none of those things existed. Um, so I thought instead of trying to build this 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 monolith of a system that essentially did everything um, it might it might make more sense to kind of build the infrastructure and then let the developers build the experiences on top of it with the idea being if we can really give people this like like alternate all digital banking infrastructure. Then uh, developers would be able to build out applications uh, for large and small use cases. And uh, the idea the, the idea end up being, if you can really build this piece, then uh, um, with economies of scale, you can give a cost parity to small and small developers. With the idea being like small small markets, like let's say if you want to build out like like a forex application just for the nepali immigrant population it's a very small addressable market and traditionally it won't be like lucrative uh, or exciting to vcs but if you can make those markets self 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 sustainable in some way then more and more products like that would exist um and and at that point our inspiration more so became um Uh, let's kind of build the Amazon web services or financial services. The idea being, if you can make it really easy for anyone to build and launch financial products, then by definition, more use cases would be served than they would be served if Synapse were the user interface in itself. Um, uh, And that's where you kind of pivoted and then started building pretty much the infrastructure layer uh, versus also building the consumer experience in itself. That's a fascinating
1: journey, like all the way from India to starting Synasify, and the genesis of being that you identified some tools in your physics, trying to make it more practical and identified it with the problem that you had was with opening a bank. We'll talk about what Synasify is doing right now. But one question before that is why do you think banks still are able to have this sort of uh, monopoly in, in terms of the way? Uh, they run their business processes. Why has it taken so long for technology to kind of disrupt? Because this technology infrastructure existed,
0: but why is it coming to light now? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And uh, just like almost all good puzzles, uh, there are like multiple pieces that are happening in parallel and they happen to kind of converge in this moment in time. That's what I find really fascinating about all these different things. Uh, uh, Like usually when you look at history and you see how some events unfolded and there are a bunch of these unrelated things that happen. Uh, So what's happening in financial services is this. Um, uh, We had the Patriot Act, which all of a sudden just increased the burden on compliance for banks, uh, which essentially, essentially exacerbated the situation, which was that banks were never technology companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they were by and large human-run organizations that were servicing-focused and in some cases investment-focused, um, and now they had to r- like rack up this whole thing, which the only way they knew how to do was with people, which had this unintended impact, which is the cost of onboarding a customer became expensive. Um, because now you had to do so much more stuff for onboard, uh, for onboarding someone and also having them as a customer. You would have to do transaction monitoring. You would have to do know your customer. You'd have to do all these different things. Um, so this essentially made the divide of, sure, like the world was moving more digital and banks were not seen in that category, but as soon as you had this Patriot Act uh, legislation in place, essentially it put the banks on a path for... Uh, uh, reduced margins and more human operations, um, and that's where essentially that seeded the first opportunity for a truly digital back office automation first type bank. Right? If 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 there were a bank back then that said, interesting, like we have to do do these ten things more now uh, than we used to before, uh, is let's build software for this. Uh, that bank would have won, and the fintech industry wouldn't have, by and large, existed because that would have been the culture of banks. But that didn't happen. What banks did instead is they solved the problem in the way they are used to thinking and solving, which is, fine. Let's hire more people. Our cost of goods is going to go up a little bit. Our, uh, uh, which is totally fine. Like most of our most of our revenue is coming from these net large dollar customers, anyways. So it it. It erodes some market for us, but doesn't erode the market we t- deeply care about. Uh, and they were okay with making that sacrifice. Um, and that's where, like, really that seeded the like the need for fintech. Uh, now, some other interesting things were happening in parallel as well, which is cloud started existing. We had a lot of innovation around uh, uh, different web interfaces, and and API started coming about. Um, And then in parallel, our compute resources kept on getting better and better. And with that, neural nets, for the first time, became commercially feasible. Um, And then you had these statisticians that that were now also merging into programming and saying, "Okay, how can we solve some the probabilistic problems with with computers as well, uh, instead of just the deterministic ones? And that's where you had. Fraud decisioning, loan decisioning, KYC, computer vision, and all of these different things are kind of coming in at the same time. And now, obviously, there's COVID, which is interesting. Um, uh, and then you have this like this this new world that emerges, which is like, okay, well, it beca- it's become quite obvious to almost everyone at this point that to be able to win in financial services, you need to be truly digital. Uh, you need better technology to be able to address a larger market segment, um, but it wouldn't have happened if, like, all these independent things didn't happen and didn't like converge at this time that they've converged.
1: So. Right. No, I, I totally agree. Right. There's a bunch of converging forces, as you just mentioned out, that was really helpful in accelerating uh, the pace of innovation within financial services, especially around the middle and back office uh, areas. Um, so, was that your first starting point? Is to automate a lot of the middle and back office uh, infrastructure, um, or, or the better question is like, where is Synapse fire right now from its genesis days?
0: Yeah, I think I think a lot of people think of Synapse as um, well. So, uh, Synapse has existed before this was even a phrase, but now people are like, oh, ba- uh, Synapse is a banking as a service provider. Mm. Um, not really. Like uh, uh, Synapse is a back office automation company uh, that's that's essentially automating the back office of banking. Uh, uh, APIs alone won't solve the unit economics issue that exists in banking. Like uh, sure, it would like digitize everything, but it won't really fundamentally change. Uh, uh, the piece that we care about the most, which is that make sure that everyone across the planet has access to high class financial products and API API enablement alone is insignificant. Like, mm-hmm. I think API enablement getting a lot of attention because it essentially creates some new companies and new business models. And that's interesting. Uh, but that still doesn't solve the problem uh, that that is the most interesting to solve in financial services, which is how can you reduce the cost of all of this to a point where um, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, uh, you essentially get a financial advisor as well. Like, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, the likelihood of you having a better financial health is quite high. Versus today, we're essentially like, yeah we have almost no good way of helping people in a scalable way maximize the likelihood of financial success and finance is like complex like and not everyone is an expert at this um so yeah it's like most people are self-medicated like that would be like if 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 i said tomorrow uh doctors are going to get quite expensive um and there would be no insurance which also is a band-aid but besides the point but if people didn't have access to like medicine or doctors, and then we just assume that everyone was, would self-medicate themselves, that would make for a very unhealthy uh, culture in general. The uh, same is true with banking, except we've just normalized it. What really needs to happen and be solved in financial services is how can you really reduce the cost of like, like financial health and advice and automation to a point where someone in a village all the way to someone who's a billionaire has access to like really, really great tools and automation services um, so that the default in financial services is healthy, right? Mm-hmm. And you can almost never get there uh, if you have an incremental cost per customer, not at the marketing side, but mm-hmm. at the management side, right? Uh, because that puts you in odds with people you're onboarding. Uh, um, unless you charge them directly, right? That's where you try to incentivize them from uh, 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 to spend more money, get a credit card, like all these things that might be not in the best interest of your customer, you still are incentivized to do because by definition, you're trying to improve your margins on your customer and you want to go all the way down and improve your margins on everyone. Uh, so to be able to like change that adversarial dynamic, um, you really need to be able to... Um, uh, automate the back office or at the very least autopilot it to a point where very few people are needed uh, to be able to kind of like run this at a large scale, like not millions, but like billions of people. Um, and it still kind of is quite low cost. So that's what, like that's what really needs to happen. And I know banking as a service gets a lot of attention, but the real issue is like the back office. That's what needs to get automated.
1: Got it. Yep. No, I think there's uh concept of self-driving finance or autonomous finance that's being floated around which kind of the core concept of that is being the financial health of the end consumers or individuals but at the other end of the spectrum um, finance is something which is very trust enabled right Um, unless you trust an entity it's hard to build the relationship with with that individual or that customer base in general so do you think the automation of finance at large is at odds with that trust aspect?
0: No, not really. Well, if you if you make it so easy that anyone can be a bank, do you think there would be a lot of banks? And my answer to that is yes. And a big reason for that is um, finance has always been a, it's like a trust-based uh, business, right? So people really, really resonate with folks that, align with their values. And that would always be the case, right? So they, uh, you would still have organizations that would put emphasis on one thing or the other, right? Some uh, some organizations might put emphasis on, um, we want to get our customers to a point where they don't have any debt, while some other people might focus on uh, debt is okay, but we essentially want to make sure that you're, you're accruing the right kind of debt and you're smart about it and you're getting refinancing correctly and all these different things. Uh, and there are different philosophies into what's really good financial health. And arguably they're all sound. Like uh, um, like the like one one of the most common things in the Indian culture that I probably is like ingrained in me is try to not take any debt. <laughs> it's like, right. I can't <laughs> take any loans, like loans like just try to live within your means, right? Um, and that's one way of living life. And the other way is no, try to like uh, you can definitely you can definitely over or over leverage just over leverage intelligently and so on. So like I think there are always going to be like multiple financial advices and different appetites that customers would have. Some might want to take a very aggressive approach. Some might want to take a moderate approach. Some might want to take a very conservative approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I I don't think financial automation is at odds with 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 any of that. It's more so you need to be able to get to a point where uh, the outcomes are intentional uh, and they can be they can be done uh, uh, to widespread audience at the same time right With the idea being i see a future where uh, people will bank with the company that they Ideologically, most resonate with, which is like, yeah, this is what's going to be my medicine. This is what's going to solve my problem. These are the people who can manage my finances, and I'll feel good about it, right? Um, so it's it's kind of like that. It's literally like people use uh, choose their general practitioners based on their insurance coverage, but also based on their personality. Like they need to be able to trust that individual. So the same what happened here. Uh, Except today, the optionality is lacking, right? Like, they're all large banks are all by and large the same. Like, uh, so you really want to be able to disrupt that, but also you want to be able to disrupt that in a way where it is financially feasible, not just VC financed, you know? And that requires a lot of work on cost optimization.
1: And so, from what I hear, is finance of future or the future of finance is going to be very modular and very individual based, something. Um, and you'll have technology enabling or augmenting a lot of those decision making on behalf of your end consumer and some preferences that you may have.
0: Yeah, like you're going to have a default preference, uh, and then you're going to have, have like an underlying uh, uh, thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, I think, think banks would, banks should behave like hedge funds, except very, very efficient, right? Mm-hmm. If, like, uh, and not not everyone has like the good or the bad fortune to interact with a hedge fund. But if you would, like every, every hedge fund has a thesis and they have an approach. Every bank needs to have a thesis and an approach that, that they can honestly tell their customers, this is how we think uh, uh, good financial health looks like, this is how we're gonna help you achieve those outcomes. And, and you can monitor that like this. That's how all financial services need to be, not just investments, right? Um, So to be able to get there, you have to just become like extremely efficient in your back office and then think of almost every single uh, bank as pretty much like like a quant hedge fund. Like it's like mathematically run. uh, um, uh, Obviously, it's going to have its own philosophy and its own strategy and thesis. And they would be able to communicate that honestly with the customers and the customers would, would, would take the pill they most believe in and say, okay, this is, this is the hedge fund if you may, that can really maximize my, uh, uh, financial outcome. And they would choose that and subscribe to that. That's how I see the future of finance, like next five years or something. So. No, I think that's an interesting
1: picture that you paint for the future of finance. And obviously we are in middle of this pandemic. Um, and the financial behavior in the States was drastically different, if I may, prior to the pandemic and what it's shaping out to be. What are some of the changes that you saw before are actually being flipped on its head um, or some of the insights that you're seeing through Synapsify or just uh, the
0: financial uh, marketplace in general that's, that's bound to change forever? I have a different perspective on all of this than most friends that I've talked to. Like. Um, in my mind, I think we had become like wasteful, everybody. Uh, we were over, over, overindulging in capital. We were overindulging in almost like everything. Like everything was dialed to an 11. Um, and just like with any, any recession, the biggest change that has come from this is everyone's become capital conscious. Everyone's become margin conscious. Everyone's trying to optimize and improve their business functions a whole lot. Um, and I see this in like the most Buddhist sense as there might be, like, it's like, there is a lot of pain and suffering, but also there is a lot of Zen that comes to this, which is okay. Like got to We, we, we got to sit down for a second, think hard about what the business should be doing what what is intentional not just react to the market and just beef up on capital that's not that's not something you can afford to do anymore and then you have to start making some very healthy choices and a lot of healthy choices are around uh, um okay let's 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 look at our margins like let's see how can we reduce our cogs. let's figure out how can we uh, uh automate more things and improve business functions um, pretty much every 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 time mm-hmm. a market goes down that's what really businesses do like and in a way that's a healthy practice um so what was happening before covid um was you had this like really bull run market and everyone was just like taking on capital and just spending insane amounts of money and now everyone's trying to focus more on their margins go back to their fundamentals um really really focus on what's important and really like run like Pivot their business to run more efficiently. Um, that's been my observation. Now, now culture is like a pendulum, right? So Like right now we're we're kind of like going too far on the conservative side. Once the markets open up, we'll kind of like moderate, bounce back somewhere, and then we'll again go on the complete opposite side and access of spending and capital and everything. Maybe something else would happen, and we'll go back. So I kind of see this like as a cycle, by and large. And right now we're in this like clarity zone where we're trying to make everything more efficient, improve the margins, make for like a much more better and sustainable company, go back to the basics and figure out what's most important. What are the challenges that we really want to solve? What are the challenges we want to offload and not solve today? Um, So that's kind of the behavior change that I've seen.
1: Got it. And what do you think would be that mode that'll distinguish companies or startups that succeed uh, post COVID versus those that will fail?
0: I don't know if I see it as fatalistic, but I do think uh, a good approach to business is more live within your means method, which is, uh, I think people that, and in, in, in everything is a function of its environment, right? Like, um, um, So pretty much the genes that would be activated right now in an organism that would make it flourish are how capital efficient can you get um, and uh, how can you execute with less? Like people who can pivot or have had the mindset of saying, even with few resources, I can do more, will most likely shine in this like COVID and post-COVID scenario because they would be kind of like prepping for the race during COVID and then sprint post-COVID. I am very skeptical of... uh, uh, the statement that I've seen some people make, which is, um, oh, uh, let's, let's play offensive. And mm. like, it's like, look, you're, you're trying to make bets on a market behavior that no one has seen before. And uh, um, you don't know if those would succeed always, unless you, unless you make some fundamental bets, right? Like, I'd be very cautious of, any anyone who's like, oh, let's go, let's let's play aggressive right now. Uh, this is a lot about going back to the fundamentals, like improving your business functions. Thinking of like how, like how could you scale your business without having to add ten x, twenty x, thirty x capital and people resources, and really setting that infrastructure right. And if you can do that right, then post COVID. Uh, you can put more cash in and you would still grow quite significantly. So companies by and large were thinking like that, which is think we're cash strapped, think we need to get very, very efficient, are actually setting themselves right to a point where post COVID, if, if there's an infusion of capital in that company, uh, they will be much more efficient in deploying that capital versus a company that was in quotes, playing offensive, mm-hmm. who's never learned how to be capital efficient. <laughs> So in my mind, it's very important for businesses right now to think how can we become capital efficient? How can we build our business models in a way that they would scale? And and if you can succeed at doing that, uh, then essentially what that means is post-COVID markets are open, you will get more cash. If you're doing good as a business, you will have a higher chance of succeeding than a business that's never gone through that cycle to begin with.
1: I, I agree. And I think it sounds very analogous to what a lot of sports... Uh, you know, strategies are as well. <laughs> your defense is your best offense, especially in times like this where capital efficiency, resource efficiency, and just um, you know playing within your means becomes important. So, I, I I I totally agree with that point of view as well in terms of how to create that right structure around uh, those efficiencies and optimizing on a daily basis is going to help you succeed. Um, switching gear a little bit, so. You know, you have exposure to a wide array of financial services uh, through Stunas and the companies that are using uh, the platform itself. Uh, where do you see like major acceleration happening is when I mean, what I mean by that is uh, whether it's in you know, the payments rail or is it like the savings or the checkings or what layers of infrastructure that are being adopted or being transformed much quicker compared to others?
0: yeah so this is where like covid has had um an interesting uh functional change right like uh, uh, we had anticipated that uh the next big thing that would be disrupted would be credit cards mm. um and now it's it's a little interesting because i don't i don't i don't think um that would happen because um Sorry if I may interrupt, so what was the thesis behind why a credit card would be uh, uh, oh. disrupted, sorry? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, in our minds we thought, okay, well, uh, first let's get really, really good and efficient at opening deposit accounts because mm. that's kind of like a hard, hard problem to solve. Th- this th- this might be an interesting backdrop to like kind of give into how how Synapse thinks of like well, what to build and how to build. So mm. in our minds, um from the very beginning, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to create uh, uh, the most efficient deposit hubs, if you may. The idea is very analogous to an EC2 instance on Amazon. The idea being how quickly and at, at what low cost can you open up a deposit account for an individual. And in our, in our, in our race is to the bottom, which is to zero, right? Like how can you get to a point where someone gives you KYC, it costs you zero, to be able to open up a deposit account for them instantly. right? And, and if you can solve that problem, then you can serve all of these different use cases that have been fragmented today. Payment processing, uh, uh, FBO accounts, savings, checking accounts, what have you, right? So like at, at its very core, technologically, that's the problem you really need to solve. And that's an extremely hard problem to solve because you have to get compliance right, Uh, you have to get technology right. You have to surround it with all the features that people care about. You could open up these deposit accounts, uh, but if there's no way to interface with them, then no one's gonna use it. So you have to add ACH, you have to add card processing, you have to add card issuance, you have to add cash access, you have to add all these different things around it. Once you do that, then what you do is you really build this interesting low cost deposit function Uh, And then it doesn't matter if that deposit account stays open for a second or for five years or 10 years uh, because the cost is like zero. Right. So it doesn't matter. And then can serve as many varied use cases as possible. And some of them might only activate some features while others might activate more features. Right. Um, So in this recursive exercise of like unbundling and like commoditizing this banking infrastructure, uh, you solve a bunch of different feature challenges. Uh, uh, all these payment things you want to create, card issuance, account number issuance, ACH, and so on. Then the next feature is interest accrual. Okay, let's accrue some interest in it. Uh, then the next feature comes about, which is most interesting is, okay, today this account can only be zero or positive. Could you Could you build out the right risk infrastructure behind so that if it goes negative, you still know how negative it can go? before you want to put a, put a ceiling on it, if you may, uh, which, which essentially is a credit account, a loan account, right? right. Um, and in our minds, we always thought, okay, let's kind of like commoditize this, this deposit hub, and one of the features we really got to nail down over time is the credit component of the deposit hub, because once you make it really easy for people to get a checking account, the very next thing that comes in people's mind is, well, I really like this experience. Could I also put my credit card in here? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, could I could I also put my mortgage in here could I also put my student loans in here could I also put my insurance in here and so on and people keep on asking that question again and again and in our mind we were like we got to be the people who, who answer all those questions uh, so credit cards were like the next big thing in our mind and COVID came in and essentially now people are going to have less resources than they did before and everyone has to rethink their financial model a little bit so that changes the equation just a little bit Uh, but still at its very core i think the very next frontier in financial services is how you have built really solid experiences around checking accounts you want to be able to build very solid experiences around credit Um, now the only thing that would change right now in my mind the credit would be securitized and then over time unsecuritized. but you just got to still be able to get that rail right so that's kind of like the next thing in our mind we're like that's gonna be the next big thing. The other piece that we think that's gonna be quite big uh, um, is gonna be this concept of the concierge, which is high-class support on demand. And you don't have to get to humans every time. You wanna be able to get a bunch of these things done automatically. Um, and the third big thing that we think is gonna happen right now is globalization, which is, uh, I don't just wanna hold US dollars, I wanna hold yen and rupees and all these different things because I have friends and family that I want to be able to interact with and like send this money to in uh, pretty much why FaceTime and WhatsApp and all these things have become so popular. A big reason for that is people just don't want to use the cell phone network anymore because their friends are like everywhere. Right. In right. in the same way, people want to be able to vend more cash everywhere. Like um, So we, we got to make that happen. Um, once you solve all of these things, what I call, which I think are the foundational infrastructural problems, uh, uh, including the concierge service, then the very next thing that becomes the most important thing is financial advice and kind of enablement around automation. But, but before that, like aut- automation is just a little too early because you don't have all of the variables to be able to play with it. Um, so, so that's why we think like in this order is how this problem needs to be solved.
1: That that's fascinating. What what do you think is the uh, biggest challenge during product development? So now, you s- one of the things you pointed out was, you know, um, the automation or technology itself plays a big role. What are some of the other challenges that you see from a product development point of view?
0: I've thought about this a lot, and uh, uh, people who know me really well, if they, they will listen to this, they will they will know exactly what I'm talking about. But. Uh, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot in context to the Russo brothers uh, people mm-hmm. who built the, the Marvel cinematic universe mm-hmm. um, to me, I've always been fixated on how is it that they tied all of these things from the very beginning and go all the way, like these movies build up so well yeah. uh, um, and they're so well connected. Um, and that in my mind is one of the best products you can build. The best product you can build is that tells its story and adds on and adds on and adds on over time as you unfold it more and more um, and in my mind, they've had one of the best uh, product development frameworks because they've been able to build out this entire universe from what was a standalone movie Iron Man and then slowly they added on all these different all these things. characters yeah and it seems like they always had that vision, you know. Right. Um, So like, how do you solve that problem? So then I started looking into their process because I was like, I want to be able to emulate what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the most interesting thing I found uh, as I kind of went through that exercise was Russo brothers have a rough sketch, and idea of what they want to do. And after that they improvise, Mm -hmm. which in its true sense is the most scientific. Method like you you have a rough idea of okay this is where I really want to go right like and that's like how I kind of laid it out to you we think it's credit and then it's this and then it's that uh, but then you really want to be able to uh, allow yourself to learn and improvise as you dive deep. Um, so one of the most fundamental things in product development that uh, uh, some people really, really connect with me on and some people find it really annoying about me, which is when we start working on a new product, uh, I tend to change my mind. Like, uh, uh, but, but we find it to be extremely valuable. And that's like the biggest challenges in product development is when you are not comfortable with saying my initial assumptions were wrong, let's pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, versus just like, like, like the government is the best example of this. The government would know this is not the right project, but they will not shut it down until 10 years after because they're, all, they're already on that track. Um, and you never want to do, do that in product development. What you want to do is you want to say, the problem we're trying to solve is X. We think this is how we're going to solve this problem. And being, being able to really segment out the problem you're trying to solve and how you're trying to solve it. That gives you this like absolute flexibility in saying, "Do I still care about this problem?" And if the answer is yes, then I kind of don't care about how I solve it. I just want to be able to solve it the best way possible. And then as you learn more and more and more, you improvise and kind of like tweak and edit. Uh, and And if you really, 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 really care about solving the problem you really want to solve, Then other things figure themselves out, and then you start telling this whole story, which is quite big than what you started with, and that add-on only happens uh, if you let yourself improvise a little bit, Uh, and then surround yourself with people who are equally creative and okay with improvising, and they know the process of product building is write something, see if it's good. If it's not good, scrap it, start from scratch again. Some people don't like that. Some people actually get like, yeah, that, that has an emotional toll on some people, while some other people find it extremely like, exhilarating because this frees you from almost all assumptions you have. Um, so for, for us, product development's like quite a creative process. And um, uh, I had been obsessed with how Russo brothers do this. Um, and I, I think the biggest piece is focus on the problem you want to solve and be completely open to being wrong on how you're solving the problem and be willing to scrap and start again at any given time so i think that
1: that's that that's really a great example for anyone who's trying to build a product to keep that in mind being nimble and flexible but at the same time you know for a startup that's growing fast these flexibilities are sort of a norm, if nowhere else, at least in the Silicon Valley, right? But as companies grow, grow bigger, you start having these constraints and stringent team structures, organization structures that do not um, allow you the same uh, flexibility you, you would otherwise. How do you challenge that? I mean, it's a core tenet for you, in five, but you are on a growth trajectory path, and I'm sure at some point you will experience that as well.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Oh, that thing has been like the most painful. Uh, um, like the resistance to to not losing that nimble, flexible thought process has been like one of the most hard things to accomplish, uh, and continues to be because this is this is a never-ending problem. Um, it's like you're kind of like playing with play, right? Like it gets molded the way you want. And if you kind of like take your hands off it, it molds itself. And then you're like, Oh no, what's going on? Uh, uh, so what I, what I tell the team and the framework, I try to champion now more and more. And this has been quite a new revelation for me, but like, um, there are like two things that have been quite like interesting revelations to me. And I hope I had had those revelations like four years ago, but uh, one of them is um The way you should think about building your company is the following. Um, How can you increase the likelihood of team goals uh, uh, translating to individual goals? And you build the team to maximize for that. Because a a company is just a collection of people who are really good at solving problems. right? If you're really good at executing, that ends up being your mode. the, the IP stuff and the patents and stuff like that is so irrelevant. Like the most important thing is ha- have you been able to build an operating system with humans um, that is really efficient at problem solving? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I genuinely believe if, you, if you've done that, it doesn't matter what problem you solve, you'll be able to solve it. Um, so the most important thing for me ends up being now how do I ensure that the company goals translate into team goals and that translates into individual goals. And if that happens, then you can always litmus test the success of an individual or a team. What becomes the most, what makes it harder to do performance evaluations all the way to evaluate the success of a team or a product is when there's a lot of jitter and noise around company goals, and team goals and individual goals, right? If if they're not flowing down like that, then the company could have goal X, for some reason the team has goal Y, and the individual's are ex- executing on goal Z. So mm-hmm. then to the company, it looks like team is just not good. And right. the answer is no, maybe the team lead is not good. Uh, the team might be very, very good. Um, right. uh, but really, really getting to a point where team goals Translate into individual goals with the least amount of information lost is how you should build your organization.
1: So would you say that's your decision-making matrix when you think about forming teams or building teams ground up?
0: Yeah. I think at this point, almost most people that pay any attention to Synapse knows that my preference is like uh, as flat of an organization as possible. I think you always want to have like management uh, to a point where, well, at the size of synapse, you do need kind of like team management. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Um, but you want to have just enough management that doesn't stifle creativity and cross 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 collaboration between different teams. The the biggest role of the managerial layer needs to be team goals need to translate into individual goals, and they need to be able to take these like uh, uh, sorry company goals need to be translated into individual goals, and they need to be able to take company goals, make them into actionable team goals and allocate people to those problems to be able to achieve the right outcomes, right? So like you almost always need to hire uh, uh, a leadership team that is a force multiplier, right? Which means almost everyone in your leadership team needs to be an individual. If you give them hundred people, they will be able to multiply their their impact with those hundred people, right? Like it cannot be you give them hundred people and their impact starts going down. That means you don't have the right person for, for the right scale at that point. So the most important thing ends up being whoever your team lead is, whoever is leading that team needs to be a force multiplier where they can take the goals of the company, convert them into the team based actionable goals that they need to be and deploy like the human capital and the human resources and your individual contributors in the most efficient way possible to be able to make progress to the goal at the fastest pace that's how organizations need to be built um in most cases Um, most people don't build them like that but that's how they should be built and i and i wish i knew that four years ago yeah
1: yeah yeah no my next question was that like so looking back at your journey like four years since you started uh yeah I reckon like a this seven bedroom apartment back in uh, in San Francisco. Oh yeah. you know, and seeing where you are right now, what are some of the things you would say you'd change looking back, you know, hindsight 2020?
0: Yeah, hindsight's always 2020, 20, but like I think there are like two things that um, I I wish I knew. Well, first off, if you talk to me any year, I will I will tell you, I wish I knew this before, right? So like you always um i i've learned to appreciate the fact that someone in my position is acutely going to become aware of more and more things that they could have done better because there are so many decisions you make and there are so many decisions that have like big big impacts right so um so yeah like on a constant basis i'm like i wish i could have done that better and that better and that better so always like learn over time but if i were to distill it down in about two things i think uh the first thing that i wish i had like that kind of a aha moment from the very beginning was build the team or build the company in a way where company goals translate into individual goals uh, um, at the highest efficiency possible, um, and that means the that means organizations need to be built a certain way. I I like if if I if I were to think the same way four years ago. Uh, um, I would have been more more deliberate about approaching it a certain way, right? Um, and the second piece is me personally. I have to be a force multiplier, which means if if I if I am to manage ten thousand people tomorrow, um, I should be able to have an impact of ten thousand people type stuff, right? Like um, I don't think Synapse needs ten thousand people, but I'm saying like if if me personally. I need to be an individual that is the force multiplier at the highest scale possible. And then I need to have the right leaders in my company that are also force multipliers in, in their own sense, right? They need to be able to take these team go- uh, company goals that we have, translate them into actionable team goals and be able to deploy the workforce to solving that problem the fastest pace possible. And that, those are very rare skills. One that approach is quite rare, and second, that skill set is quite rare. Um, so personally, what I what I what I wish for myself is to be able to keep on increasing uh, um, my my throughput as as a force multiplier, just not in just not as an individual contributor, but me as an individual. I want to keep on getting to a point where. Um, if a problem x is given to me uh, i can build the right team and the right organization and the right framework around me to be able to solve that problem the fastest the best way possible Um, and then i wish the same for people that i put in the right leadership positions to be able to do so at their team level Um, so if i had that approach in my mind four years ago i would have been quite intentional about uh, um, just I I just I wish I would have been more intentional about this before than I am now, but I am now, and that's fine. Right, and
1: that and that's a learning process. You learn a bit almost every day, right? Um, and then that's the beauty of being nimble and flexible, and the point that we touched earlier too. So it's it's transpires from that point on. Um, one other question, uh, Sanket. Is there a startup, a fintech startup or otherwise that you actually admire who are doing things right and then
0: that you look up to and you would want to (laughs) emulate, if you will? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, The startup that's in my mind, um, it's not a fintech startup, and I think it's in people's mind recently more than anything is SpaceX. I think being able to have a very, very enormous and ambitious mission and Make very quantifiable pro- like uh, a substantive uh, uh um, milestones towards that is is quite hard and like they have probably like one of the most meaningful and interesting challenges uh, um or missions that I've seen and um being able to put like human astronauts in orbit and then in the International space station uh uh with with a dragon capsule that's like by and large fully like automated um uh, is is a step function improvement in like space technology uh, and rocket technology. So I think like um, I like that was like one of the most exciting things I saw uh, that made me very happy during during like quite a hard time for for everyone. Um, so yeah, I can like do admire what they're doing. I think like I think those guys are those guys are quite good.
1: Yeah. No, I, th- I think uh, SpaceX is they is being admired by everyone around the world right not yeah. only just for the cost reduction i think isro was the <laughs> was the standard now it's come to spacex and how they've drastically reduced the cost the fuel consumption the automation technology the entire 360 right um so, so i agree that's a very good example uh to emulate for sure um i think we are coming to our uh, end of for this session as well sanket so i really appreciate your time um but before we go where can the listeners reach out to you in, in order to contact?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm actually um, quite active on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. I don't, I don't, I don't tweet as much. Uh, but I usually people message me on Twitter a decent bunch, and I and I reply to them. Um, so yeah, you can like reach out to me on Twitter at Sinket, um, uh and mostly like I'm quite active there. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. It's again still just synket.
1: Excellent. Uh, I'll have that in my notes as well. Then again, thanks so much for the conversation, Sanket.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.
1: That was a fascinating and eye-opening conversation with Sanket. There's a ton of interesting ideas to unpack and think about. I know I'm going to be thinking about it for sure over this weekend, but that will be all for this week. Tune in to our exciting episode next week. Until then, namaste.